And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 230 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I'm Brian. How are we doing this week? Uh, There is a light at the end of the tunnel for this, yeah. And it's not the headlamp of a fast approaching train? I don't think so, but I guess time will tell. (laughs) Do you remember in the old days of Apple's, like... Just before, and I think even up through the first iMac, like OS 7, 8, 9, there were different voices you could have Apple's text editor read from. Yes. And some of them would actually sing. (laughs) I don't know that I remember that they would sing, but okay, yeah. There was one of them that would sing, like, to the tune of the funeral dirge. (laughs) Wow. Um, and the test phrase, if you wanted, every voice had a different sample phrase. Uh, and the test phrase for it was, the light you see at the end of the tunnel is the headlamp of a fast approaching train. (laughs) Apple used to have more of a sense of humor, is really what I'm saying. Yeah, okay. That's, uh, there were some engineers who uh, took great pride in that, I have no doubt. Oh, I'm sure. It was a thing of beauty. And my father, uh, back before like remote access and things like that were relatively common tools, had a habit of, on like, April Fool's Day, taking control of other computers on the network throughout the office and making them talk or sing at people unexpectedly. <laughs> Everyone hated it. It was truly a nightmare, but he got a kick out of it. I was going to say, everybody but him hated it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, fun times. Sure, sure. Let's talk about comics. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you know who's not having fun times right now? <laughs> Krakoa? Apocalypse? <laughs> All the mutant folk, yes. Oh. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> Ten of Swords, Creation. Yeah. The first... The first official chapter in Ten of Swords. So I also read X-Men number 12, which I did not get to last week to uh, in preparation. And you were right. It is 100%. It is the immediate precursor to this. Um, and I would say almost required. I think it's at, like this and Excalibur both, I think, yeah. are truly required. And if you look at the official checklist for ten of swords not the one actually in the back of these issues right the full list while we had a lot of like road to ten of swords issues there are only two prelude issues and it's it's those two it's excalibur and x-men 12 totally makes sense yeah so let's let's actually cover what's going on in here because there is a bit of ground uh, what we did not acknowledge last week, 
which we learn in X-Men 12, is that essentially Arako, the other half of Krakoa that is trapped in this other universe, mm-hmm. or whatever, is populated by mutants who Apocalypse... I don't know if we ever learned explicitly ruled over, but like was a he was their defender, he was their champion, he came here and sealed them off and trapped this this conquering force there, but they've been awaiting his return. Right. And his wife creation has been or Genesis. Hey, that's where the name comes from, I bet. His <laughs> wife Genesis has sort of been holding down the fort along with his kids and family and sort of the rest of the rulers of this magical mutant society. Right. And it uh, there's a there's a diagram at some point in here that makes it a lot more clear um like the symmetry between Earth and oh god what's the what's the name of the whole world that they're in? Um... Amalith? Ameth, Ameth, that's it. Ameth. So it's like Earth is to Ameth, which is like the whole world, which is more than just these magical mutants, right? Right. And then there's Krakoa, which is like the bridge to kind of other world from yeah. Earth via and, the external gate that was uh, built in Excalibur twelve. Right. And uh, Arako is like the Krakoa for Ameth. Like it's like the the pathway that is the mutant bridge between these. And yeah. then between them all sits Otherworld, which is why Otherworld has been so important lately in the mutant books. Yeah, it is. Hey, it's the nexus. It is the hub. Hey. It's where all of reality converges. Yeah. Um, It's that page you're talking about really makes me want to see a map making competition between Grant Morrison and Jonathan Hickman. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if we could take it. <laughs> it it reminded me a little bit of the DC multiverse map. Yeah, right. But yes. in a much more like formalist, streamlined way. Right. Yeah. Um over the course of X-Men twelve and this though, we, we kind of get a view into Arako's modern life. Wow, you reached hard for that one. I did, but it made me happy, so I'm I gonna, know it did. I know it did. I'm gonna go with it. Uh and basically it has been conquered, destroyed by what we are told is a conquering force. Good money's on its genesis. Um, and Apocalypse's grandson, the Summoner, who we've seen since a pretty early issue of X-Men hanging out uh, on Krakoa there where the gate that dropped him off is. Yeah. Uh, that sort of time vault or whatever. Um. He has told Apocalypse everything has happened and has gone ahead at the end of X-Men. He goes ahead to give word to Arako that Apocalypse is coming and uh, Banshee and Unis go with him. Mm-hmm. And then at the top of this, basically, we see we see the four horsemen of Apocalypse leading a raiding party in into Otherworld through the, the rift at Arako. Um, and we see a tower fall and send message to Saturnine. And then we we see Banshee and the Summoner return. Banshee is basically unconscious. He goes to the healer. Healer. And the Summoner basically asks Apocalypse to, to intervene now. And Apocalypse goes before the Quiet Council. 
they basically say, mm, you're on your own. We want to close this gate. But Krakoa doesn't because he's in love with Arako. Right. And so uh, I hope you know what you're doing, Two Dots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and essentially they're like, so, like, you can do this, right? Like, first of all, with Krakoa on your side, we can't stop you. But know that this is not something the Quiet Council is approving. Yeah, we we cannot send reinforcements, and Apocalypse right. is like, fine, I will ask for volunteers. Yeah. And part of what I like so much about, especially this section of this issue, mm-hmm. is how much more it humanizes Apocalypse. It really does, yeah. Because, I mean, he is historically just this force of nature like he he literally embodies evolution in some stories yep yeah the 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 classic line i am as far beyond you as you are beyond humans or whatever whatever right yeah um but in this like he is he is from the drop kind of struggling to keep up with what's going on there is a personal stake for him there is a part of his life he has not remembered or has at least chosen not to acknowledge mm-hmm. there is family which is not something that's ever really been a thing for him and there's this idea of reuniting these two mutant worlds and bringing magic together with technology and continuing to advance his cause in this very personal way and like that moment where he says fine i'll ask for volunteers like the idea of Apocalypse asking for help is kind of terrifying on its own. Instead of just going and grabbing people and making them do it, yeah. Um, or even just acknowledging he needs it, right? That well, he right, can't yeah. do it alone. Right. The other thing about this is you mentioned that, you know, where he's kind of struggling to keep up. I think they kind of put the reader in that position, too, because there's a lot going on real fast here. And yeah. There's a lot thrown at you as far as, like, who these people are and how they relate and which sides they're on and like all of this that like it, it's a very fast moving you kind of feel like you're struggling to keep up a bit too yeah and i think i think some of that is obviously by design right like, oh sure in the same way that house of x powers of tin made you ask a lot of questions about what's going on uh-huh um and in the same way to some degree like excalibur has sort of intentionally left what what it's really about mm-hmm. in the dark until its 12th issue. Right. Um, I think kind of both of those threads, which makes sense, because this is Hickman and Howard writing together. Yes. And those have been sort of the two things they've each spearheaded so far. I, I like that it feels frantic in that way. Uh, but I also think it's funny in another regard, because I, after reading this, out of curiosity, read a couple of different comics sites recaps of it just to see, just because I was curious, how on earth are they going to break this down? Like, what is their take on it, kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. And like, in both of them, in totally minor, understandable ways that have probably been fixed, but right now, by now, but in both of the ones I read, there were certain details that are like, no, that's that's blatantly wrong. <laughs> like. One of them said that Banshee and Unis were both taken prisoner in Otherworld by whatever forces coming from Morocco. Yep. And that Cable and 
Rachel read uh, read Summoners. Why not? No, Banshee was there. Banshee was literally back on Krakoa. We saw Correct. that. Yes. There's just so much here that like I can't even fault them for that because trying to track it all like we're not going to touch every piece of this oh, talking not about even it. close it would be the entire first hour of this podcast yeah um it's already at least 10 minutes of it and we're a third of the way through the issue <laughs> yeah but it's so dense and you're right there are so many moving parts and so many so many either characters and elements and alliances that we are just given at face value and have to accept right and in at least one case, learn that is not accurate at all. And th- and honestly, that's the most interesting one, because that's the one that we were given clues, like, super early on that maybe that was the case anyway. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, it's very much that sort of, I think I've described Hickman's structure on this show before as, like, He'll write the inner layer of something, and then the next pass sort of spirals and builds out, and we'll touch back on that first layer. Mm-hmm. And then the next pass after that sort of spirals around and touches back on the first and second layers. And I feel like it's kind of that. Like, we met Summoner early on. We immediately didn't trust Summoner. Right. Even in X-Men 12, Summoner's a little sus. Yep. And... But you've been given... Part of that, though, is... Because he was introduced so early, you've been given all this time to just see him there. Right. And that that gives you a bit of complacency, if not trust, right? Well, and I think there's a certain magic trick in this issue mm-hmm. in seeing how much Apocalypse trusts Summoner. It kind of makes you trust Summoner, too, because if Apocalypse is going to buy in... Right. I mean, Apocalypse is supposed to be one of the biggest planners in the history of the Marvel Universe, right? Like, that's his whole thing. Yeah. So, seeing someone beat him at that game so quickly, so easily, is almost unfathomable. Well, except it goes right back to what you said earlier, which is how this story humanizes him so much more. Yeah. Because if you look at what it is that he's trusting, right? He's trusting his family. Yeah, he's, he's trusting, trusting his grandchild. His, his grandchild his, and his children. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, that's... That, to me, is the best thing about this issue. Both sides of this. Both seeing Apocalypse made human, in a way, and also seeing how that erodes what makes him Apocalypse and makes him kind of a force. Right. Uh, it's it's a really interesting interesting thing to sort of build the rest of this on, and we've 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 pretty much hinted and and kind of given away the next part of this, which is so Apocalypse leads this group of volunteers, which is Havoc and I can't remember what's uh what, what's Banshee's daughter's name Siren Siren There you go, um, Rockslide and uh, Monet Yeah Right. Um, back to, and Summoner, back to, uh, Otherworld to meet the, to go meet with this force, right? Yeah. Well, uh, they are laying we, siege to Lady Saturnine. Correct. So they arrive there and, uh, it is the, you know, it is three of the, the, the horsemen that Apocalypse originally, his children that he created. Was it not um, all four? Are, are they all there? I think they're all there. Oh, it could be. Maybe this. Maybe this. 
Uh, oh yeah, they are. I see them. Yep, 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 yep. There's one that's not in the in the picture I was specifically looking at. Um, but and I, it's important to know that we're seeing this story, this part of the story, through Phoenix, um, not Jean Grey, but Rachel, reading so, uh, uh, Banshee's mind. So Banshee got hurt, brought back, taken to the healers. Um, Cable and Rachel go to see him, and she's like, something's, I don't know what's going on. So they probe, and they're seeing this through his memories of it, because he was there. Right. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And what they saw was uh, essentially Summoner betraying uh, uh, Apocalypse. Unis, yeah. yeah. Well, specifically Unis and Banshee, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, Unis and Banshee, and Unis being captured and Banshee being, you know, hurt and injured. And then he brings Banshee back in order to facilitate, you know, this uh, kind of cover up and to bring Apocalypse to, you know, to uh, confront this force, right? Right. So when Apocalypse gets there with uh, Siren and Havoc and these folks, we see that he is betrayed not only by Summoner, but also by his children, who specifically Summoner and War stab him and yeah. mess him up real bad. <laughs> um, we don't and even Summoner... know exactly how bad at this point, right? Right. Uh, Summoner, as foreshadowed in X-Men 12, yeah. also spends a moment with Rockslide. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, um, I, I'm trying to think of something clever to say how he split their relationship, but, um. Well, one, one might describe it as a tectonic shift. Sure. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty major. Yeah. Uh. Meanwhile, there's Saturnine, who, I don't, I've said before, I don't know the Excalibur quarter very well, the Captain Britain Corps and all of that. Right. Is Saturnine traditionally this much of a Machiavellian schemer? Saturnine is the piece of it I don't know, but I believe so. Okay. Like, and so she's, and once again, she's not bad. She's just not good either. Yeah, she's, I mean. She's totally willing to let these forces destroy each other, right? Well, and she's she's willing basically to do whatever it takes to do her job, which is protect this nexus of reality. Correct. Um, there are moments, I think, in here where she is actually more sympathetic than she's generally been in, in Excalibur. Yeah. But by the end of this, where she is essentially coercing each side into agreeing to fight each other in some sort of ritual combat, where they each have ten swords. Ah, uh, ah, uh, you uh, see? I, I get where it comes from now, yeah. Um... <laughs> Also, the tarot thing. We we see, again, it was the free yeah. comic book day issue, but we see her tarot reading yes. in this. Uh, and there's a, a white page about a bunch of mutants and mystics who have all given the same tarot reading repeatedly in the same night. Yep. Uh, is this your tarot reading? If so, we're sorry, is a really kind of funny approach to that. We see her Saturnine orchestrate what I'm assuming is the crux of the remainder of at least the first arc of this, right? Yeah, the, I the think so. Creation section. Uh, there's also the cable plot, 
let's talk about the cable plot in the last third of this. Okay, well, there's one more thing I want to go through with Saturnine before we shift okay, sure. off of it, which is, so, uh, she kind of observes these two fighting, and the way she handles it is essentially, like, we see here specifically in Otherworld at this, at, at, you know, in her domain of, of Otherworld, just how powerful she is. Mm-hmm. Because these two forces, at, right after they've stabbed Apocalypse, literally, she comes down and halts time for, like, every, like, she just stops everything. Yeah. And then takes uh, Death, the Horseman of Death, and essentially turns him into uh, Chibi Anubis, which is beautiful. Wonderful. A+. plus. <laughs> right? And this is, and then that's where she then kind of unfreezes these two different sides and arranges this contest of, 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 you know, ritual combat as you, yeah. You really wanted to say contest of champions. I kind of did, didn't I? Yeah. The secret, the secret war of mutants. (laughs) How's that? Yeah. They're in her own personal battle world. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's so. And then each of the sides essentially names the ten swords that will be their swords. And yeah. I imagine the next part of this is going to be those ga- the gathering of those, right? Didn't they both name Muramasa? They do, which I'm super, super curious about. So yeah, like we get all we get some blades which are are like already known and the kind of already known where they're at. Like we hear the yeah. Twilight Blade. Which we know that you know the the apocalypse children like they already have that right. Yeah. Um, there's some of these which is like the the black bone of uh, Amduat, which I think is probably what um, uh, uh, Summoner was wielding, maybe. Yeah. Right. We know so, the light of Galador. Right, and then on the other side, like like we know the light of Galador. We know where that comes from, and Warlock is named as a sword, which I thought was super funky. Right. Yeah. Like, ooh, I like that. Um, Sword friend warlock. And the, right. And then the super odd one, though, is they both name Muramasa. Which is, does, do we know where that exists in the Marvel Universe right now? Currently, I don't know. It seems like, seems like I heard about it in, a couple years ago some in something, but I can't remember what it was. I'm, I'm sure it's been name-dropped at some point. It has to have been. Yeah. And specifically, it was something about, it was, it, I, I know it involved Logan. So I'm thinking it was like with his rebirth somehow. Like right before all the Dawn of X type stuff. But I don't know. Yeah, it, I'm trying to do a quick Google and see if there's a last mention um but then we get to the part you were talking about which is this this cable subplot so when once rachel and cable learned that summoner you know basically was was betraying them then he goes to talk to scott and gene gene since she's on the quiet council and scott because he's the general in charge of their you know uh military forces essentially yeah um and Scott goes, okay, then I know what we have to go get. and Because they had seen this some device, and Cable didn't recognize it. He's like, I don't know what this is. And Scott, when he sh- when uh, Gene reads their mind and shares it with Scott, he's like, oh, I know what this is, so I know where we have to go. And there's, like, not a gate there, so they have to take this teleport mechanism, and they get to this place, and it's some sort of powered-down system of some sort. Um, and 
Cable uses the sword of uh, Galador to to turn it back on, and then we find out that it is um, it's swords space based. Yeah, it's called the Peak, and it yeah. is it is a orbital station of sword, as in S period O W period O period. Yeah, like the initial, yeah. which was the um, sentient world operations. Yeah, I, research uh, division, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, a few corrections from things we have said and guessed at in the past. <laughs> yeah. Um that that patch on Abigail Brand's shoulder in uh Fantastic Four Fallout was in fact a sword patch. Yeah, as in and as an in, X patch. As in this sword, which is now under control of the mutant. Yes. Yep, it it was both. Um that was manifold behind her. I thought it might have been. Um, but also, I did get something wrong there. While she was not originally introduced as a mutant, uh-huh. she was introduced as half-human, half-alien. Abigail Brand is mutant, as she revealed in one of the, like, Avengers versus X-Men Consequences books okay it hasn't really been explored much since then but it is on the record that she is on her human side a mutant which is 100 percent exactly the kind of thrown away detail that hickman would pick up and use as a major point which i love yeah because like a lot of her powers have always been assumed to be from being an alien right and it turns out that may not be the case, but yeah, yeah I'm, st- and, and there's, we have also since learned that there is going to be a sword book yeah. coming out. Spoilers, spoilers for solicitations. There's a sword book starting in December, which is not in the official solicitations. Right. Was in fact announced afterward. Yeah. And, uh, so that's, that, that shows you the level of how they're, um, incorporating this. This is a major, yeah. major plot point. Um, and that book will be written by Al Ewing. And you, you have to imagine, right, that the fact that they have this huge orbital station called Sword with this whole division and, and book that's going to be coming out, and it's not mentioned in any way in the Ten Swords that either side spoke yeah. of, right? That it is like, kind of like the Eleventh Sword that is, you know, super critical, but not acknowledged yeah yeah well we'll we'll talk a little more about what we know about sword later um the one other thing i want to mention on ten of swords is just a quick moment um i knew intellectually that cable and rachel were technically siblings but i don't think i've ever seen a moment where they get to like do that seeing kid cable in particular and rachel talking about like go tell mom and dad yes was kind of sweet in a way I did not expect it to be. And I've gotten that, I've gotten hints of that before, like at some of like the summer's dinners that have happened and stuff. Yeah. There's been a couple of comments they've made that, that kind of make you, but it, it is, it's still a kind of a new paradigm that, that has to, I have to stop and think about a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I like it. All right. Moving on. Juggernaut number one. Uh, I was so surprised by this. You and I both. Um, I if I'm up, being, I oh, go ahead. Up, I was gonna say I picked it up because it's you know it's a mutant book and it's 
you know, a first issue and I try to give a lot of things a chance, especially if there's something that, you know, are at least tangential to other things that I'm reading. Um, but I was not expecting this. No, like, I, I really figured on the sort of Juggernaut's kind of a meathead and we're gonna get some sort of anti-hero thing and okay, fine sort of deal. Yeah. And like really like almost not... a Punisher type vibe where it's yeah I'm not a good guy but sometimes I do good things kind of th- right or re- I mean in my head I had it at like mediocre Venom story oh, yeah, that's fair yeah there you go that's that's a yeah. very fair yeah uh, just because I I I don't like the Punisher the Punisher is just antithetical to me yeah well, that's fair um. um that is not what this book gives us this book gives us a juggernaut who is. Working in demolitions for damage control. Uh-huh. And meets a group of, let's say, rebellious teenagers who heckle him and then run into a really shaky building that he knows will come down because he's knocked down enough buildings to know when it doesn't take much. Right. And one of these kids has the ability to basically slow motion down to nothing. And it... Right even stops him or at least slows him down in a way that he's never experienced before yeah she calls herself decel and it's it's clearly some sort of like draining of kinetic energy yeah like deceleration exactly yeah yeah i I love the that name makes you sound like a battery line (laughs) yes that was good um because i was thinking it and the moment when juggernaut said something i'm thinking i realized well you know i i like this book a lot actually it it, turns out it's funny because that that actually leads into what is my quote of the week brian's quote of the week yeah so d cell gets injured and she's in like she's in a hospital and juggernaut's there and he says hmm you know d cell makes you sound like a battery and she's like and juggernaut makes you sound like well I got nothing. It's a cool name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like Diesel. Diesel's a very good character. She is a good character, yes. I look forward to their uh, weird adventures together for another four issues of this. Yeah, so you very much get the vibe that, you know, he's like, you know, kind of old school, you know, out of touch, older guy, right? And, yeah. like that they're both going to gain a lot out of this kind of thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, and she, like, her whole thing is live streaming and social media, and, like, that is kind of how she keeps herself alive. Right. And she ends up suggesting that, you know, you could get you could get a lot of likes and a lot of views if you go fight the Hulk. Right. <laughs> Which, I saw, I saw some people online even in the comics industry, who who maybe work a little more in independent, creator-owned spaces. Kind of grousing at, oh, we're playing up Hulk and the Juggernaut. That's never been done. But, you know, I feel like that's kind of the point of this setup, right? Yeah, like, I do. I feel like it's it's the nod and wink, okay, we know this is... It's like having the Hulk and thing. the Thing yeah. fight. Which we got a really satisfying version of recently in Fantastic Four. Uh-huh. Um, but I think this knows and does gives us sort of the nod and the wink about, yeah, we know this is this is an overplayed trope, and I, I, I feel like especially after reading this first issue, this next issue is going to 
turn that upside down somehow. Yeah, I I think you're one hundred percent correct. Um, I have a lot of optimism about a Juggernaut book. What is twenty twenty? <laughs> the weirdest year ever is what it is. I don't. My pull list is so strange in twenty twenty. <laughs> Just like everything else. All right. Just like everything else. The Immortal She-Hulk one-shot. Speaking of strange upside-down hellscapes. Yeah. Um. The, I will say there's two things about this. One is um, you really don't get a lot new about her. Like, th- there's no real story here as far as, like, you know, her doing some new adventure or something like that. This yeah. is a, a recap of like the times in her life that she has died mm-hmm. and her kind of exploring what does that mean and how do I deal with that? And she goes to some people, you know, like two or three people and gets different answers about it. None of which fit her. Yeah. And then the other side of this is we actually probably in this issue get more about what's going on with the hulks and you know the gamma irradiated folk than anywhere else that has that has been to this point like this gives us some actual answers are you are you totally caught up on immortal oh, hulk not right even now? close okay so i don't think i'm going to say anything that this issue doesn't give you yeah then. um a lot of what this issue is doing in in reexamining the three deaths of Jennifer Walters, which is kind of the issue's title, right, is so far in in the lore of Immortal Hulk, it's totally ignored, Jen. Yes, because she's been a piece and other things going on, and it hasn't really made sense to get her involved. So part of what this is doing and going through each of those deaths is explaining by the rules of Immortal Hulk how she has been revived and how it fits into that timeline. So we see her first death when Bruce saved her, the first time she goes to um the place below. Yeah. Now that she has this energy in her and first experiences this, and she just assumes it's a nightmare and kind of moves on. Mm-hmm. Then we see the second time uh when she she dies briefly during Civil War II. Civil War Two, And we see her talk to Bruce's father, who is in the place below. And that, that idea of Bruce's father there and manipulating and watching is something that has been teased throughout the entirety of Immortal Hulk. Right. And we just had number zero, which really specifically deals with something he says in passing here about, you know, Bruce killing him on his wife's grave got it um and then she comes back for the third time during during empire and sees the leader and this issue very much answers a question that the most recent issue of the immortal hulk has teased which is we've had the idea of the green door since day one and we saw at the end of that issue of Immortal Hulk, uh, the leader turning the door red and blocking Doc Samson from coming back to life. This issue explains that he has the power to do that and what that means. And basically anyone who comes and goes, comes and goes at his behest now. Right. 
basically he has been there and observed this and being who he is has somehow gained the ability as he puts it to change the locks on that door yeah so that he can control who can or can't go back through it um and then of course the other piece of this is because of what he tells jennifer i'm feeling good now so i'm gonna let you go but don't die again right she is really for the first time in her life afraid of death and i think that's where this issue sort of leaves her in terms of questions consequences going forward right it also i think puts her and i don't know this but it it very much looks like it puts her in a location where they can now easily pull her into the immortal hulk storylines right yeah i think so so it's 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 good in a way it asks more questions than it answers this issue but i I think that's necessary at this point to sort of explain how how she's been left out of the puzzle so far. Well, and the other thing, I don't know if you picked up on the very, very last page, uh, and it's a question. Of, so it shows her back in her bed, like, asleep, like, trying to struggle with all this, right? Mm-hmm. And the shadow that is being thrown in from a window outside is very clearly of the leader. Yeah. So, like, is he now here in our world to deal with her, or is that just a shadow of his comments? Or, you know what I mean? Is it a, a yeah. metaphorical I, shadow? I don't know. I, I definitely took it as metaphor, okay. but if he controls the door, who knows? Right. Right. Well, one thing we do know in... So, one thing we know from Immortal Hulk is that whether or not he can cross over... So far, he has not crossed over himself. What he does is he takes control of other Hulks. So we've seen him control Rick Jones. Okay. And we've seen him maneuver Cataclysm for the Hulk by controlling Rick Jones. So if anything, it might be a hint at he has some hold in Jin. And can take over her. Oh, yikes. Uh, that's, or at least that's a third sure. option. Sure. Yeah. Suicide Squad number nine. <sighs> wow, I've been talking about this. This was the one. Yeah, um, this was the one. <sighs> I, I, even though I knew it was coming, like, this kind of kind of hurt a little bit. I mean, I think that's what's so good about this issue is one one i get why why tom taylor would say yeah you all say there will be no consequences well you know what fuck it deadshot's gonna die like it reads as kind of a playful okay if you say so marketing kind of push right but there's a certain i think psychology to telling your readers there was in this this case is gonna happen yeah in this case i think it was totally part of what they wanted to present and how they wanted to present it. Yeah. Because it's one thing to have this come out of left field. And so real quick, rough beats of this issue, the suicide squad goes, tracks down Ted cord is going to ambush him in his office in this, this Island nation he's bought and is building up. And when they get into the building, there is Superman standing in front of a window that's broken with Max Lord, not Max Lord, Ted Cord. Ted, Ted Cord tied up. Yep. And and Superman it's, saying it's over. You know, I'm going to take him in. He's going to face justice. Right. 
it's one thing I think to read this issue at face value, mm-hmm. and it's a wholly different thing I think to read this issue with the expectation that Deadshot will die. When you see that scene, I at least immediately was suspicious of Superman. Oh, sure. And I don't know that I would have been in the same way if I hadn't known that this was coming, right? Well, and what it specifically does is everybody buys this, right? Everybody's like, oh my god, Superman, you know, we can't go against Superman, and even though we want to fuck up Ted Kord, you know, like, Superman's got him, so it's over, right? But because we know what's going to happen, we kind of see it from the same view that Deadshot does. Yeah, it puts us in his place. It does. Because he's the he is suspicious of this. And he has reasons to be suspicious of it as we find out. And like he goes through what his thinking is at some point. But then and by the time he gets through explaining why he knows what he knows, like you're at a point where like the and it, this is very much it made me think of Hitchcock, right? Where yeah. you know it, it really is in the suspense and knowing that it's coming is where the tension is, right? And you know this is coming, and there's this tension, this whole issue, specifically once everybody else leaves and he's there alone with them. You're like, I know it's coming. What's going to happen? When's it? What's it, what? Oh. <laughs> And, like, the great thing about that tension is it does really the impossible and makes Superman the villain's issue, the issue's villain. Yeah. Like, Superman is kind of immediately the bad guy here, and that is unthinkable. Right. Now, admittedly, Superman is unmasked, and we learn who it really is. Right. Which I, I, I think we won't mention if you, you know. No, I, I don't want to mention it. Um... He would have gotten with it away, too, if it weren't for these kids and their dog shot. <laughs> their dog shot. Wow. Great name, by the way. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, and, and just kind of how they present that page where it happens is also like like chef's kiss. Good job. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. <sighs> there are only two more issues. <sighs> yeah. I, yeah. This I and that's kind of how this issue leaves you is just that. Ugh, yeah, yeah. That's ex- I, I mean that's exactly how I felt when I finished it. Like in a good way. Uh, I like it from a storytelling point, very much so. Yeah, in a good way. Moving on, the Flash number seven sixty two. Now you did not get to this. one I did yet, not right, get Brian? to this one. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know that I can wholly address what I like about it without... Oh, feel free. Uh, I'm, yeah. yeah. Without hitting at least one big beat. This is essentially, after after the big, huge, grandiose scale of this war with all these speedsters and all these rogues, this issue is very much focusing just on Barry and Eobard. And we learned recently that at least Eobard claims, um, although I like this and I know better than to think this will stick permanently in comics. Especially Because Flash. comics. Yeah. But I like this idea, and I like at least that we can live in it for the moment, that all of the indecisiveness that Barry has faced in his life and that other speedsters have faced has been Eobard sort of whispering 
doubt through the negative speed force at them. And what this last arc has kind of done is conflate uncertainty and self-doubt, which I think we can both agree has generally been taken too far in Flash comics over their history. Especially with Barry since his return. It's one of those things where it started out okay. And yeah. was was actually and people liked it and thought it was a good idea and I don't necessarily disagree. But then it because it was a good like it got used so much that it became a big problem in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. So where this issue puts Barry is in the position to essentially either have to kill or let reverse flash go. And I'm going to call spoilers here, and I'm sorry, Brian, I can't not talk about this. Barry makes the decision that there is one way that he can move forward and move on. Not just move forward, but move on. And that's just to forgive Eobard. And he makes the decision to use the speed force in the same way that he created Flashpoint. He pulls it into himself, and as Eobard tries to, like, phase through him resets Eobard's place in time so that he is now affected by all the changes he's made. Oh. And can just go back to the future and live a normal life, never having been the reverse Flash. And I have to talk about this because I think as a metaphor for letting Barry actually move on, I cannot think of a better way to do that. No, this that's... Because here's the thing, like, and I, we may have even talked about this on the show before, right? The act of forgiveness isn't about, you know, the the person that did whatever it was. It's about the person that they, it's, you know, it's about the person that was affected by it. It's about the person that is doing the forgiving. That's yeah. the person that changes and is affected by forgiving, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's yeah. that's what this whole hundred and one issue run has been built around. Right. And um, I don't think there's any doubt, I don't think either of us believe that Reverse Flash won't show back up, right? Unfortunately, no. Um, like, that's an impossible thing but to believe. what someone, if they were clever enough, could do is use this as an opportunity to literally start with a blank slate and not make, you know, not carry all that baggage and everything forward with it. Yeah which would be super refreshing. That's really what I hope this makes room for, is letting Barry move out of this place of doubt. Right. Um, one thing I also wanted to kind of talk about, and maybe maybe this is a hard question to answer without having read this issue, but I think in general you still can. Back when this run was first announced with Rebirth, uh-huh. one of the things we talked about with Josh Williamson writing is that he tends to tell these long-form stories that build and come back and you see where the pieces have been all along. Right. And that maybe at first they can feel a little slow, but ultimately it's worth the wait to see what he does with that world building. I'll answer first, I guess. Uh, I think that he did that successfully here. I think that that, that worked for me. I'm curious what you think. Um, the only hesitation I have is that I haven't actually read the last two issues. So, um, Uh yeah, so I'm hesitant to answer, but from like the buildup that has come to this point, 
and where, you know, after this discussion we just had, I, I think I can say yes. Um, the like everything that was done to this point feels necessary for this, which to me is the sign of that, right? Yeah, like, and I think that's exactly it. Even, even the arc of this I have enjoyed the least, which was the the sort of anti Flash arc, the sort of Barry gets venomed arc. Right. I think I I described it as what was happening. Yep. I can't imagine this paying off without that. Right. Um so yeah, I I'm I'm really happy with how this is shaken out. I the only thing I wish, I wish I could see what Williamson would do with this new status quo. But I also get walking away from it where he did. Right. Right. He's essentially left almost a completely new blank slate for somebody to start a new kind of legacy for the Flash, right? Yeah. Which is, like, that's hard to pull off with somebody with as much history as he has. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there is one more element of 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 clearing the slate. Is, does this have to do with our next book we're going to talk about? It does. Yeah. That's, that's moving on to Dark Knight's Death Metal Speed Metal. Which, by the way, like, just for the name alone, props, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, this is... Addressing kind of the one dangling thread from the middle of this flash run yeah. because of Heroes in Crisis, Wally, yeah. the relationship between Barry and Wally. And I don't, I don't think Barry has seen Wally since Wally went to the sanctuary. I don't think so. Until this issue. Right. So you, you did get a chance to read this. I did. What did you think about this one? Um, it, it did. And I think maybe it even meant more to me because... I grew up with Barry as my Flash, um, and, like, Wally as the Flash, like, you know, I obviously knew and accepted it and, you know, read a bunch of stories with it and all that, but, you know, people talk about how, is your Flash Barry Allen or is your Flash Wally, right? Yeah. Um, my Flash was Barry just because that's how I was introduced. That's how I grew up, everything else. I was super happy, of course, that it was Wally that inherited that mantle but i get the feeling and maybe i really kind of understand that in spite of that and in spite of the fact that his run was actually even longer than barry's right Mm -hmm. uh that he was always it's still in barry's shadow right yeah it was barry who inspired him and who was the flag which is you know barry never had uh, from jay garrick Right. This very much kind of kind of like that those flash issues that we just talked about very much kind of resets and clears that away. Right. Yeah. And Barry talking about, no, you really aren't in my shadow like you really are your own flash now. Right. Just like like to a point like and there was always this thing where he was the flash but only if flash wasn't there kind of thing yeah does that make sense he was first backup flash it, right and he was the legion of backup flashes <laughs> and it this one really to me made it feel by the end of it that he was much more like Barry and Jay are to each other where mm-hmm. they are both equally flashes right because Jay never felt like a backup Flash. 
and Barry never felt like a backup Flash to Jay. And you could say Jay maybe felt like a retired version, and certainly in some cases, you know, that's how he's portrayed. Yeah. But, like, both of them equally felt to be fully the Flash. Wally, I think, finally gets that from an acknowledgement of even those people like me who grew up with Barry as their Flash. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I'm I'm glad that I, I don't think I ever really thought about the fact that Barry would have been your Flash. Oh, yeah. Just knowing how much of the Flash's history is, in fact, Wally. Right. So I'm glad to hear that it works even given that because i don't know that i actually have an answer to who is your flash while i've been reading comics barry has been the flash right what i really came to first in terms of knowing the flash was the justice league animated series Mm -hmm. and that was wally but that was wally in a way where like wally kind of i don't know it was being portrayed as barry yeah It was dozens of episodes before it was even acknowledged that he was Wally, right? Like, he was just the Flash, kind of, eternally. Um, And I imagine, had I known at the time, like, the difference in the belts in their two costumes, I would have caught it. Like, Barry's is straight across and Wally's is pointed. But, no, I, I did not know that at that time. So, like, in a very technical sense, I guess it was Wally, but... The Flash was the Flash. The Flash was not his secret identity. Right. Is really right. kind of where I came from. Yeah. Um, and it still worked for me. And I, figure, I, I figured I was probably an easier target for it than someone who did grow up on Barry. Yep. Um, the other thing this gives us is this fully, fully reinstates literally everything about the Flash family history. Yes. Is now fully back in play and and acknowledged and there. And like everything from uh you know uh, Barry and Jay and their relationship to Barry and Iris, you know, being who they are to each other to Linda recognizing Wally and his kids being there. Yeah. To um uh you know Jesse Quick. The, the equation? And, yeah. Yeah. The Speed Force equation is used in this. And like, what? That What's the last time that got referenced? All the way up to literally uh, Avery, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, like, all of it. And I, I love the fact that this is now all back in play. Yep. I agree. Moving on. Action Comics 1025. Oh, damn. I was not expecting this in this issue. Yeah. So we find out why, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Leah Leone, um, Marisol Leone. Yes. Why maybe she was able to gather the power that she did mm-hmm. and why Dr. Who was it? Gloria. Dr. Glory. Dr. Glory. That's it. Uh, why she kind of knows as much as she does about some things. Yeah, of all the things that happened in this issue, learning the secret origin of Dr. Glory was not something I expected right? to happen. Um, and, yeah, and we find that in a, out in the first few pages. Because yeah. we find out that both of them are actually from Earth-3. Which brings me to the question, have we had more than one Marisol Leone running around this entire time? I don't know the answer to that. And is one of them evil and one of them not, right? Right, because like 
If one of them is from Earth 3 and evil, then it stands to reason there is a good one on Earth 0. Correct, because that's kind of the whole thing with Earth 3 is everybody is their moral opposite, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, We get three more issues of this, and I cannot even begin... I, I think... I think there's definitely room to end this in three issues, but I feel like it's only going to get bigger and crazier from here. Yeah, so we find out that they're both from Earth 3, um, and then the other, the other two things I think that are in this are, one, Dr. Glory then brings someone from Earth 3 that is her break glass in case of yeah basically a parasite that's actually good at killing supers yeah which i'm trying to remember this because the earth three stuff i am like i know the stuff that i've read but i also know there's stuff about earth three that i haven't read well and earth three gets retconned so much i mean right okay dc multiverse in general but like even the basic rules of earth three have a habit of going back and forth like are they antimatter? Can they touch their Earth Zero counterparts? I think like right now they're not antimatter, but that. I but then aren't that some that. of them dead right now? Well, <laughs> here's the yeah. Here's one of the like things that have not gotten light in Rebirth, right? Uh, at the end of the New Fifty Two, like Power Ring was dead. Yep. And admittedly, what we see here is a flashback. Who knows how far back? Um, but Power Ring is dead because that's where Jessica's ring came from. Yep. Johnny Quick, or whatever his name is, may have been dead too. Wonder Woman, or a Superwoman, rather. Superwoman had had a child. Right. And was imprisoned somewhere. Owlman was like in hiding at large on Earth Zero. I forget where Ultraman was left at the end of New 52. But he might have been dead. That's what I'm. That and that's that's really where I'm wondering and what I'm coming to from this, yeah. because I think this parasite killed him. Well, uh, if he killed him, that's a different version of history than what we have seen okay. in the main continuity comics. Um, I think what I'm coming to is even the the recent history of Earth Three may not be may not be something they're sticking to got it well and to post me- rebirth because i mean rebirth is soft soft changed so much continuity in history right. anyway there may just not be a clear or maybe we'll get it soon clear internal answer to well okay how does that affect what's happened on other earths um that have you know what else just occurred to me is there's nothing that tells us that this parasite is coming from Earth 3. That's true, too. Because we know she can hit all kinds of right? multiverses. And very possibly the person that she's communicating with on those other er- is her alternate self, right? Yeah. Um, well, and I and- I also want to just real quick acknowledge, we did see Earth 3 in uh, Young Justice, and there was a power vacuum there. So at the very least, right. like... Yeah. The crime syndicate is not on Earth three. Correct. Now, the other thing is, I, I like I, I know I have seen this parasite before, and I cannot remember where. But I know I have, and I don't remember where. Yeah, I, I'm. 
The point it did not immediately look familiar to me, but that means nothing. Yeah, the point being, it is very much a parasite that can and is capable of and will kill super, like Superman, Superboy, Supergirl, like super powered Kryptonian folk. And things do not appear to be going well for them by the end of this issue fighting him. No, no. Um, somebody rushes in. It's not and Magnus. That was <laughs> <laughs> rushing in as maybe not a good life choice. Like maybe an end of life choice, even. Wow. Yeah. Uh so yeah, this is uh this is going places. This is another one that's not afraid to um to to tell some stories that may actually have some impact. I love this in DC right now. Yeah, me too. I mean, and I think this is kind of, I hope this is, it may just be that there are a handful of creators who have been given license to do that moving toward whatever post-death metal generations status quo they're building toward. Yep. But I hope that it's not just in service of that and we can keep seeing things evolve and change and new ideas like going back to the flash like i want to see a barry who gets to live in this post reverse exactly. flash world yep yep um i'm bummed bendis is leaving the superman books but i'm also so excited to see how he wraps it up it's uh, yeah, me a huge as well. conflict yep all right last one an unkindness of ravens number one um this is obviously this is a new book this is by boom uh being put out by boom and it is Dan Panosian, uh, Mariana uh, Ignazi, and Fabiana Mascolo. Um, this is an interesting kind of, I would describe it as an amalgamation of books. Uh, there's a bit of like a Buffy-type vibe in that it occurs at a high school. Um, there's a bit of a almost, I, I would say almost Sabrina, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina-like. Yeah. thing in that you know there's clearly something going on in this high school that's like a mystery but like not overt so there's this girl named Wilma who um it, it, this is clearly her first day of high school when we see her and are introduced to her and then we kind of get a, a, a like immediately get a flashback to her dad dropping her off at school right um this is the town that he used to live in as a kid called Crab's Eye. Um, and uh, basically their whole family was in a car wreck when she was three years old. Uh, their, the mother died and her sister died. Uh, and her dad uh, suffered injuries, like had back issues and leg issues and that kind of thing. Uh, he has not worked since then, but has this new job that has brought him back to Crab's Eye. So she is now starting in high school, and like one of the first things she runs into is all these people staring at her, and she's not really sure why, until at some point she gets to the bulletin board and sees a poster for a missing girl named Waverly Good, who uh, just disappeared and looks almost exactly like her. Huh. Yeah. Um... She is, you know, like assigned a locker and goes to her locker and opens it up. And there is this glowing purple script inside that says, Welcome to Crab's Eye. Meet us after school by the birch tree. 
<laughs> that nobody can see but her. Of course. Um, and then immediately she turns around and the what is 100% this is the other piece that's thrown in here which is 100% the Mean Girls girls, the Queen Bees uh, show up and for some reason are not immediately disliking of her which is also curious to everybody because you know she's a new girl of course they're going to be mean to her mm-hmm. um, and we get this uh kind of stand down conflict but you know like the standoff between the mean girls and this group of four girls who are like clearly like the goth chicks that are called the ravens that's so raven right um you know one of them has super shortcut hair with a with an eye patch uh one of them has a shaved head with mohawk and and lip piercings and like you know very much like you know the the punk slash goth folk right yeah um, they ha- kind of had this stand down and they turn away from each other. And then we get this uh, kind of almost a mirrored conflict between who is the father of the the main mean girl and the principal, who very clearly kind of, like I said, mirror this standoff between the two groups of girls um, in that he is the, the super rich person in the town who is used to getting his way and owns everything, and the principal who is not afraid to stand up to him. Um, we get a scene where, oh, I, I should also mention, she has immediately met, like, the first person she met is uh, this boy who is kind of introducing and explaining, like, who these different groups are, right? Mm-hmm. But then, like, as soon as these groups show up for different things, like, at lunch, the the mean girls show up and tell him to get lost, and he's like, "Yep, I'm out." <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, but like, don't make her leave because they want to talk to her. And it turns out that there's this thing where like maybe both group, both of these two groups are kind of trying to recruit her to their side, and like we have no idea why. Um, and yeah, so she chooses after school to go meet the the, the ravens. Uh, and the final panel is like one of them, the girl with the eye patch lifting up her eye patch. And we see that like her eye glows underneath it. And there's clearly something magical going on there. And like, that's it. So essentially we are presented with an introduction to like names of these characters and general places. And then a whole lot of questions about, okay, what the hell's going on here? (laughs) And that's it. Um, I I really like it. It is very definitely. Cool. Um, there's nothing like mature about this. Um, so I would not, you know, I, I there's no, probably more mature than like a lumber girls type thing, but not like uh lumberjanes. Uh, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah, lumberjanes. Yeah. But um, uh, not anything that would be you know like a a grim adult comic. In this. Gotcha. So super accessible as well. Um, like I said, a lot of Mean Girl meets Buffy, maybe meets uh, Sabrina vibe. Cool. Yeah, I like it. Awesome. Is it still good? Wind number four. Wind and friends uh, slip out through the sewers, but dis- but realize that uh, making their way ahead may not be as easy as they thought once they get out of the city 
Would you say that making their way in the world today takes everything they've got? I would, in fact, say that. In fact, I might have stumbled trying not to make those words come out of my mouth. <laughs> Aquaman number 63. This is the second half of the Jackson Hyde and Zebel story. Uh, he helps fend off the trench invasion and uh, gets somebody's number and tells off his dad. It's great. Batman Beyond, number 47. Terry and company uh, finish their raid on the Death Star and save the world just in time for Booster Gold to show up to need Terry's help to save Batman's legacy. Uh, This series is ending in three issues, so uh, I think it's definitely in its endgame here. Batman Superman, number 12. Batwoman and Steel get a call from the Batcave because Batman and Superman have gone missing after Brainiac merges with Super or with Batman and Superman's villain tracking database and kidnaps them to the moon. Oh boy. Deceased Hope at World's End number 10, Brian. Uh, um <laughs> we see um we see how Talia would deal with um, dispensing justice. We see um, Black Manta get dealt with in this world. And we find out what happens when Black Adam and his cohorts show up uh, on the island that the kids were sent to to keep them safe. Oops. Oh no. Justice League Dark, number 26. Uh, in our second tarot-themed book this week... Madame Xanadu deals some cards to Constantine, who maybe should have stayed for the last card in his reading. The Amazing Spider-Man Sins of Norman Osborn one-shot. We're actually a week late to this one because diamond and shortages. But uh, this is a necessary chapter in Amazing Spider-Man. Not only does it give us the formation of the Order of the Web, but it tells us why all the other spider folks want to stop Peter and gives us a look at Peter and Norman trying to save themselves together in Ravenscroft. Daredevil number 22, uh, Matt and Foggy prepare for Daredevil's defense as Daredevil calls Iron Man for a favor in defense of Hell's Kitchen. Venom number 28, Uh, We learn the identities both of Codex and uh, whatever the name of the the symbiote hunter who's been hunting Venom is. I can't remember his code name. Um, Whoops. Can't help you. Yeah, I know. Um, I just keep calling him by his actual name in my head now because it was a good reveal. The Autumnal Number One. This is a new series from Vault about a uh, woman and her daughter who are both, um, let's say, a little bit combative, who get called back to their hometown when the main character's mother dies and leaves her the house and this town is spooky as fuck i'm i'm gonna try to coerce some of the others into reading this so we can talk about it in the spooktacular okay that includes you brian i know shadow service number two 
after Gina has been trapped by MI666, we learn why they want her and she goes on the run. December 2020 solicitations, which we are going to do with a swiftness. Yes, let's do it. Uh, from Dark Horse, Afterlift is coming out in trade. I believe we talked about the first issue of this way back. This was a Comixology first digital only book uh, that recently won the Eisner for best digital series. Written by Chip Starsky, art by Jason Lee, colors by Parasoline. Uh, this is about a rideshare driver who ends up picking up a fare who is supposed to be dropped off in hell and is not cool with that uh, and goes on the run. Uh, from DC. Oh boy. Batman Catwoman 12. 12? Sorry, one <laughs> of 12. I was like, 12? What? All 12 of them this month. No. Uh, yeah, this, I mean, come on. This It's Tom King going back to, first of all, it's Tom King writing a 12-issue series. We know how mm-hmm. much that is. It's Tom King writing Batman. We know how good that is. And, Specifically writing Batman and, and Catwoman, and it's Tom which King, is the best right. part. And it's Tom King writing Batman and Catwoman. And to point out, uh, this is actually telling the a tale across three different timelines the past when bat and selena met the present when you know what's going on is what's going on and then we also get a return to the future where that was introduced in the batman annual mm-hmm. where they are married and their daughter helena is batwoman yeah holy crap um, i can't wait for this book there is maybe one more thing one more point uh that is is made very evident in promo art and that king has talked about on twitter do you know who the villain of this is or at least a villain of this i I do know who the villain of this is who that uh uh, you're speaking of uh andrea beaumont i.e aka phantasm yep yeah yeah that that would be it oh boy yeah this is gonna batman black and white number one of six uh this is uh, these are like anthology books right yeah yeah i i don't think this needs a ton of explanation Uh -uh. we've talked about harley quinn black and white and red we've talked about wolverine black and white and blood this is what both of those are alluding to with their titles yes this is a series that dc releases periodically in anthology form where they give no not you siri where they give high-profile writers and artists short Batman stories. Right. Yeah, and there's there's some interesting people that have been lined up to do some of these. Like G. Willow Wilson's doing one, which yep. I'm interested in. Yeah, so it should be good. Saladin Ahmed, I think. I think is so, yep. yeah. All right. Endless Winter. So I listed all of these as one big blob yeah. because it makes sense. Um, so there are, I think it's nine issues. And these are these are this is an event book for DC that's being released all entirely in one month. Like yep. holy cow, that's amazing. Um, but they are very specifically tied into some like like they are in order, kind of like Ten of Swords is like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Like they're telling you what order these are in. Yeah, um, here's here's the list real okay, quick. Yep. Justice League Endless Winter Endless Winter one. Mm-hmm. The Flash number 767, Superman Endless Winter Special number 1, Aquaman number 66, Justice League number 58, Teen Titans Endless Winter Special number 1, 
Justice League Dark number 29, Black Adam Endless Winter Special number 1, Justice League Endless Winter number 2. Yes, uh, and this is a story about, uh, as they describe it, an extinction-level event that forms as like this winter storm at the former site of the Fortress of Solitude. Uh, if you're not aware, the Fortress of Solitude recently uh, in the Arctic was destroyed, and Superman has basically refounded his Fortress of Solitude in the Bermuda Triangle. Yep. Um, and bad things happen here. There's some super. There's a couple of super interesting things. I'm just going to mention from the first solicitation of the first book, which is Endless Winter number one, and that mm-hmm. is um, that somehow like Queen. Hup- uh, Hippolyta is tied into this, and Viking Prince is going to be in this, which I'm super excited about. Yeah. Um, so there's some, they're including some odd things in this, and I'm super s- interested to see how it all ties together. I'm, I'm not sure if there's an entire spinoff series or what coming out of mm-hmm. this, but I have seen reference to, uh, this group being referred to as Justice League Viking. <laughs> I would imagine a lot of it has to do with how well this does and how well it's received. Yeah. 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 And every issue of this has the same writing team. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, Andy, Ron Mars and, uh, Andy Lanning. Yep. Moving on to generations shattered. Number one, this is picking up the thread from the Generations story in Detective 1027, um, which I don't think we talked at length about last week. Have you read I that I have yet, not Brian? read it yet. Nope. You know how my week's So, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, the general kind of setup, what we know, is in that story, Batman is following a, a heist in the Gotham City Museum. And as he is there, there is this explosion that we see kind of fragment across time and reality. We see like eight different Batman from eight different eras in this sort of like spidering crack pattern Mm -hmm. in a double page spread all in this, in this place in, in the same place in the museum as this shattering happens everywhere, every win across the multiverse or creates a multiverse what exactly it is is up in the air. Um, but then Commandy with a robot arm shows up sent by Booster Gold to come get the original 1930s Batman to come help save the multiverse. So Batman Noir? Like Spider-Man Noir? <laughs> like giant pointy ears. Yeah, 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 I'm with you. Yeah. Giant pointy ear Batman. Like pointy floppy ear Batman. Yes. Um, this mentions that the original Batman, Commandy, Starfire, Sinestro, Booster Gold, Doctor Light, Steel, and Sinestro. Sinestro again. Yeah, which is either a typo or just a great tease. <laughs> uh, are trying to save the multiverse before time runs out. I think I saw a headline saying there's actually a second generations book that will be out. This one is actually, if you look at the on-sale date out in January, yep. even though it's December solicitations, right. I think that they've re- put out a separate press release that says there's a second one that will actually be out in December before this, but I'm not, I'm not 100% hundred. Well, and I that. think, I'm betting this is kind of taking the place of what was going to be Generations, right? 
Yeah, Jim Lee has talked a little bit about there was an expectation, I think from the original solicitations for Generations, mm-hmm. that there was going to be like Generation Zero, Generation One, all the way through Generation Four, right. and setting up what, what people were calling 5G, a fifth generation that would... There was talk that what it was doing was setting up more of like the Young Justice Teen Titans yep. roster as sort of taking over the mantles of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, etc. Yeah. I think it can kind of see in stories and pieces of where, where things might have been headed that way. But none of that is happening in that way, if Correct. it ever was. Right. Like, a lot of that talk was speculative. Um, so this is definitely... This is definitely taking the place of what had been solicited as Generations, yep. but we don't... But it's not the same thing, right? And that's kind of my it's, point. Yeah. yeah. And we don't know if it's going to have that kind of continuity-wide effect. Yep. Uh, DC is very merry multiverse. <laughs> this, is their, this is their holiday anthology, you know, book of different yeah. stories. And the fact that it's taking place across the entire multiverse makes me happy, of course. Yeah, that I I I I've kind of gotten to the point with the the holiday anthologies where I really just pick them up depending on how many creators I love they've crammed into one. Yeah. But the multiverse premise alone may sell me on this one. <laughs> there you go. Speaking of creators I love, Jenny Hex special number 1. I was going to say, do you know what book I was most looking forward to on this list? <laughs> I mean, I think just at face value, Jenny Hex special number one might be it for me. Like you, you, you like the title. You don't even have to tell me who the creative team is. Yeah, the fact that it's Jenny Hex, like I'm, I'm, I'm all in already. But Magdalene Visaggio is writing, yeah. which makes me even more excited. Yeah. Um, and she's tweeted a little bit about this. Really, her, her approach to this, what she is doing with this issue is. We don't really know much about Ginny Hex or her background or whatever. So this is really just Mags trying to fill out that world as much as possible. Not with the explicit goal of setting up an ongoing, because unless she's just being very coy about it, there's not one yet. But kind of populating that world so that if there is one, whether she writes it or someone else does, there are toys in the toy box. Yep. I love it. I uh, love it. I love it. I love it. I yeah. want it. <laughs> this will be my Christmas present right here. Yeah. Uh, well, it's on sale December 29th, so it may be a little but late that, as a Christmas You, you present. get my point, though. Yes. I, I do. Um, also, it introduces a new villain called Three-Eyed Jack. Yes. Over at Image, I wondered if you were going to put this one on your list, because I was very excited for this based on the creative team alone. Homesick Pilots, number one. Yep. Written by Dan Waters, art by Casper Wingard, who's the artist on Wind right now, um, and also did Peter Cannon's Thunderbolt. This is set in the summer of 1994. Uh, there is a haunted house walking across California, and inside it is Amy, lead singer of a high school punk band who's been missing for weeks. Uh, the solicitations ask, how did she get there? What do these ghosts want? Uh, and it compares it to Power Rangers meets The Shining. <sighs> like that alone like i don't know who wrote the copy for this solicitation but they get all the credit for this because that line right there alone uh expect three chord songs and big bloody action that's power rangers meets the shining yes really 
that yep. that won me. That that put it on my list right there. <laughs> Moving over to Marvel. Oh my god. <laughs> we have the first two issues of King and Black. Yep. Which is a five issue miniseries. Uh we've known for a while Null is coming. Null is here. Uh he arrives at Earth with an army of thousands of symbiote dragons and Eddie Brock's gotta stop him. Uh if you've been reading Venom, then there's no way or reason not to read this. It would be kind of wild at this point if you're still reading it to hop off for this. Mm. Uh, there are also some tie-ins and crossover issues. So, real quick, uh, actually starting in November, there's a Symbiote Spider-Man King and Black miniseries. Uh, the second issue of that is out in December. This is like the recent Symbiote Spider-Man set when set back in time when Peter had the the Symbiote. Uh, Black Cat comes back with the same creative team and a new number one. And the premise of this is that. Null has pissed off Felicia, so Felicia decides to get revenge by sealing something important to Null. A one-shot that I alluded to last week, King and Black Iron Man Doctor Doom number one, I was not joking when I mentioned an issue about Iron Man and Doctor Doom teaming up to save Christmas. They're fighting symbiote Santa Claus. Yeah, like, I, I'm, I just can't get into the whole... And I don't know why. Every indication is I would probably like it, but I I just can't do Venom, and I don't know why. But I might have to do that issue. (laughs) Yeah, the the Venom arc right now is is interesting to me in that regard because I'm not a big I'm not a big anti-hero person, right? But I actually really have enjoyed what Cates has been doing in ways that I don't think I would have expected even just based on solicitations or someone telling me what's going on. Uh, I'm a little surprised that I'm still in it, but I am very much in it and enjoying it. Uh, King in Black, Immortal Hulk, number one. You can do the math of what that issue is all about. Uh, There's a King in Black Namor miniseries, five issues. Both one and two are out in uh, December. The Union, number one, which is a British superhero team. Uh, I, I think this is an ongoing, um, I did not actually pull over all the solicitation copy for these into my notes, um, but it's, it's a new UK based superhero team and it's doing that thing that is sometimes harder as a start for new books, but it's starting as a tie in yep. to, to an event. Uh, there's the King and Black handbook and then individual issues of Venom. The Atlantis Attacks miniseries, its last issue specifically, and Spider-Woman will all have King and Black crossover issues in December. Yeah. Um, Modoc Head Games, number one of four. <laughs> well, I mean... In this house, we clap for Modoc. I mean, there's it's a Modoc miniseries, and one of the, cre- one of the writers is Patton Oswalt. Who is the showrunner on the <laughs> Modoc series for hulu like uh, okay like you gotta pick this up just to see what it's about right <laughs> yeah come on and then it turns out it's about modok being haunted by memories of a family he never had <laughs> i love it yep uh heroes at home number one brian so 
there's two reasons I'm picking this up. One, it's uh, Zeb Wells is writing uh, basically what the Marvel superheroes are doing during their self-quarantine, which just, no. you know, in and of itself is just, it's such a, a ridiculous, unique concept that I, I want to see what the hell. But honestly, what's really selling me is the fact that the art on this is uh, Giri Hiru. Guru? God, I, can, I can't. Guru Hiru. There you go. Which I just absolutely adore. Yeah, yeah. they are fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, do you know, is this a collection of the covers that have been coming out, or is this at least partially new content? I think it's new content. Cool. Because they have also been putting out covers that are Heroes at Home variants. Have you seen those? Uh, some of them, yes. Yeah. I don't think, part of it is it's 80 pages. It's an 80-page one-shot. And I don't okay, think there's then, yeah, 80. There are yeah, not that right. many variants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. How about the Chris Claremont anniversary special? Now, I'm not familiar with this particular X-Men character. <laughs> what series is he? No, I mean, it's, yeah. it's celebrating the writer Chris Claremont. Yeah, and it, 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 with a new story that's Danny Moonstar uh, drafting to across, basically going across time and space, I would assume to visit all of like the major times. Exiles? And, uh, yeah, oh. ma- the, the major times and characters that are, you know, Chris Claremont created yeah. people. And, you know, I, I, I grew up with Chris Claremont X-Men, so that's that's my, my gene. Yeah. I got I got I have this. So, yeah. I mean, I basically did too. I grew up on the animated series right. which was which was based just yeah. That. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic Four Road Trip number 1. This is another of the like Fantastic Four one-shots that we've seen. Uh, over the last couple of years that tie in and just show us different moments between Dan Slott's run. Uh, a lot of those have been uh, uh, Jerry Duggan. This one, however, is Christopher Cantwell and sounds like it's going to be some body horror. Uh, the Fantastic Four try to take a vacation. Reed can't stop obsessing over science. And, uh, as the solicitation puts it, he brought with him, uh, gruesome and terrifying side effects from his latest specimens. Yeah. Then, of course, at Marvel, um, Sword. We talked about Mm, this earlier. Uh, I don't think the basic premise of this spoils explicitly anything in Ten of Swords. Uh, instead, I think it's, it's easily understandable as sort of part of those early seeds that house of x powers of tin laid this is the x-men taking krakoa to space and starting to think about what they're doing as not just terrestrial but building building out their presence across the universe so we've seen we've seen in issues of new mutants a the talk of setting up a colony uh, in Shi'ar space, and we've seen talk in House of X and Powers of Ten of a mutant refuge in space, yep. for instance. So, like, I think this is going to kind of connect the dots between some of the horrors we saw in, in House of X and Powers of Ten and some of the things that are happening now and how one might lead to the other. Cool. Yeah. Uh, then at Vault, there is a book called The Picture of Everything Else, which is also written by Dan Waters. Uh, who just anything vaguely horror that Waters writes, I'm going to read at this point. Uh, artist on this is Kishore or Kishori. I'm not totally sure. Sorry. Mohan. 
Uh, you're familiar with the picture of Dorian Gray, right? I am. This is the picture of everything else. Basically, rich socialites keep dropping dead, and someone comes across portraits damaged in the exact ways that they died. Yeah, I did read the solicitation for this, and I was like, mm, I should probably put this on my I don't know why I didn't, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I want you to stop and think about how I've convinced you at this point to read coffin bound do you really want to have to catch up on another dan <laughs> series that i'm gonna talk you into no no i mean deep roots you read deep roots you like deep roots yep. same writer i know i know yep. well okay. yeah like i said i i, I totally get it and yep. you know uh, how you know we already talked about homesick pilots i'm getting that one yeah so yeah yep. Just twisting your arm i know all right a little more rapid fire now over at Ahoy, Second Coming, Only Begotten Son, number one of six. Uh, we've talked a lot about Second Coming. This is, it sounds like a prequel series from the same creative team uh, about the infant sun star on the doomed planet Zirconia and his eventual coming to Earth. Okay. Over at DC, here you go, Brian. Yeah. Uh, another trio of Dark Knight's death metal one-shots. The Secret Origin, The Last Stories of the DC Universe, and War of the Multiverses. Yeah, the Last 52, War of the Multiverses. Yikes. Oh, yes, yeah. right. Sorry, the title on that one. Every other one has been Dark Knight's Death Metal. This one's just Death Metal, The Last 52. Right, yeah. Yeah, War of the Multiverses. Oof. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's more Death, it's more death Metal one-shots. Uh, I'm going uh, I'm, to uh, get them yeah. and read them. Well, and this is... This is the literal end game yes. for Death Metal. Oh, yeah. In in the December solicitations is number seven, which is technically like January fifth or something right, right, like right. that. But like we are we are at the end of Death Metal yes. in December. Yep. Uh along the same lines, Tales from the Dark Multiverse, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Dark Knight's Metal, and Wonder Woman War of the Gods. So yeah, these are the ones where basically we get the these classic storylines uh retold where the bad thing that they were trying to stop actually happens, right? Yep. Um and specifically, I just want to point out the fact that like it, it, this has got to be like one of the most meta type things ever where we have a Tales from the Dark Multiverse Dark Knights Metal number 1 uh-huh. where it's Dark Knights, which is where we found about and where we the, the the Dark Multiverse existed and was created, and now we find we have a story where in that story the bad thing want like oh my god okay I can't wait. <laughs> Remember, you can't spell metal without meta. There, oh, very good. Batman Annual number five. Um, remember last week when I asked about um, do we know what's going to happen with the Clown Killer, Clown Hunter? I do. And remember when I told you about the cover of Bruce glowering over yes, him? Yes, yeah. It turns out it's this cover. It's Batman Annual number yeah. five. This is where we find out. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. All right, Brian. Pop quiz. Do you know why New Mutants number 14 is on my list to call out? I do not. Because there is a new writer taking <gasps> over. Vita Ayala. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Um... On the edge of Krakoan society, the New Mutants are on the loose in the Wild Hunt. Going big, blowing things up, and combining powers to see who gets crowned King of the Mountain. But something lurks in the trees, something old and hungry. And its favorite prey 
is Young Mutants. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, what I am considering a legally obligated purchase for anyone who likes comic, All New Wolverine by Tom Taylor Omnibus. <laughs> I will 100% second that recommendation. Laura Kinney is the best Wolverine. Yeah. The end. Yeah. Yeah. I like I this that series was fantastic. Get it. Yeah. This week's books to read there. This week's books to read. <laughs> Department of Truth number 1. I don't think we've talked about this one. We may not even caught may not even have caught this one in solicitation. I don't know that we have. Uh this is an image book from James Tynan and its premise is essentially what if all the conspiracy theories were true? Oh right, yes. <laughs> yep. Um I am super excited for this. Tynan has been knocking it out of the park lately. Uh to the point where he even made a little lapel pin available. That's the Department of Truth like CIA style logo and I I might have already bought one. Uh Brian, yeah. Avengers number 36. Um this is more uh um Moon Knight kicking kicking the Avengers butt and the whole Conchu thing I, i'm i'm all in i want more over at marvel shang chi number one written by gene yang uh who you may recall from superman smashes the clan and the terrifics and a good run of new 52 superman yeah uh also superman of china and justice league of china uh very excited for this book. yeah and brian mm-hmm. Dark Knight's Death Metal Multiverse's End one shot. Um, so two, a couple of things about this. One, it, it's obviously it's a Dark Knight's Death Metal one shot, which that's part of it. The other is, uh, it it's going to answer one of our questions that we asked earlier in this episode, which I did not realize until just now. Um, because I'm going to list the um group of heroes that is banding together. I want you to see if you can find the one that uh, completely sold it to me and identify the one that answers a question earlier in the podcast. Are you ready? Okay. Yes. It is. I'm here to play your game. President Superman, uh-huh. Owlman, Iris, uh-huh. Iris West, Captain Carrot, and Guy Gardner. So the one who answers a question from earlier is Owlman. Yep. And the one who completely sold it for you and I knew this was going to be the case from the preview image I saw of him, like, screaming into the heavens after some sort of tragic loss, is Captain Carrot. Of course! Yeah, I, I love it. I can't wait. I see Uncle Sam on the cover, too, and some other... Yeah, this is going to be great. I, I want it. I personally am still waiting for the Captain Caveman, Captain Carrot crossover. <gasps> oh. Captain Carrot! Oh. Alex, why do you tease me with these things? Because. Because I can. Uh, I want it. Now I want it. I know. I know. I'm cruel. Okay. That's it for this week. As always, our thanks to Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. You can visit our website at panelologypodcast.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash panelology. Get panelology merch at bit.ly slash panelology merch. Capital P, capital M. Or write into us with questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelology mailbag. Capital P, capital M. Someday I'll just make a page on the website with all those links. But until then, and technically even after then, I'm Alex. And I'm Brian. Go read these comics we've been talking about. Mm